City Limits. Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Here we are, acres and acres of... I've just ridden over acres and acres of tar and cement very slowly, unfortunately. (laughs) What (laughs) happened? Oh, just every red light you could get. And there's one of the lights I go through had a wonderful sequence. They did some work there on that corner recently and they've changed the sequence so you now wait ages where you used to go almost straight through. So just all those little things that add up when you leave it to the last second. Last last week I I waited at the Hoddle uh, Hoddle Street and Rams, like near Clifton Hill Station. I waited so, I I felt like hours, but it was probably really like five five to ten minutes yep. and they did not change they never change and in the end I ran across yeah. on a did a dodgy yeah and yeah. heaps of people were well they're uh, all designed sorry you could go on yeah. no I was going to yeah. say the headwind this morning was pretty significant as well <laughs> that's true <laughs> that's true well, I had a was that what it really was I, I think I'm going to be riding home into it more than uh, oh okay here, that's no excuse then it should have given that's not an excuse <laughs> and we are of course um, on the fourth Wednesday of the month yeah and we've got the full team here this morning there's uh, <laughs> it's exciting. Eugenie, Kevin, yep. we're all here. Yep. And um, and it's um, well, it being a fourth Wednesday, we're going to have one of our guests that we get lots of requests for. Actually, is um, he's a periodical guest. Is John Passant, the uh, the economist and mm-hmm. tax expert, who lectures in tax law somewhere or other these days. A former assistant commissioner of taxation. Mm. And uh, John's coming on to discuss lots of issues. And of course, overnight he he'll probably. I hope he can come on to air because he might be so distressed that the cuts to uh, <laughs> Big business tax didn't get through, so yeah. John will be a shattered man this morning. But anyway, <laughs> he's probably been crying we, all morning. We can only hope that he's able to get to the clock and, and you know withstand it without breaking down. <laughs> um, but we'll see what happens. Well, How are be... we anyway, team? Good. I'm looking forward to hearing John last because last time he was on the show, it was really interesting. And I'll I pour tea while you're chatting away, by the way. Yeah. yeah, sure. Yeah, I'll be honest. I know very little about tax, so I'm looking forward to learning what he has to say. Right, well, he, uh, he'll he just tell you that the rich need to pay it. <laughs> that's, that's oh, well, let's tell him not to call in then. He pretty much summed it up. <laughs> that's his mantra and that's it. So uh, we'll sort that one out with him. But uh, there we are. There we are. A cup of tea there. Well, this Eugenia. morning, Eugenia and I were here a little bit earlier than you, Kevin. Yes, go and on. <laughs> surprise, surprise. <laughs> um, and we were there very, being very studious at the 3CR kitchen table. With all, all the papers, mm-hmm. scanning yes, everything. Yes, so yes. So I learned something about Australia's day of shame. Did you? Yeah, it's a cricket ball tampering for those of you that That's are wondering yes. which of all the shames. Australia no, the others aren't shames. The others are, are good Just for the like country. Just like good, good process. Yeah. And <laughs> that Peter Dutton's decided that the left-leaning media is dead to him. Dead, <laughs> yes. that's right. So imagine what 3CR is doing. <laughs> <laughs> Get him buried. <laughs> What's that cadaver in the corner of it? Not, <laughs> even, not even looking that way. <laughs> we actually, well, I won't say anything. Uh, but he, he let in a couple of um, young 
young white women, of course, a couple of years ago. That's that's now come out after oh, really? after a yes, a freedom of information search. But um, there's there was speculation in one story that they were au pairs that he used, but he's denied that and claims that's libelous, etc. Mm. So we'll take his word for that. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, and he said though that these women and the, even the department said it was rare when someone was lost their right to stay here were going to be deported because they'd overstayed there. They were just two tourists that overstayed. Oh. Um, he he in fact changed it immediately and let them in, um, mm. and uh, and he said it because that's the sort of thing a, a you know a country like us does that cares about people humanitarian. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. And in fact, of course, this whole cricket thing has blown up uh, to the point, and I, I think it has given a whole new meaning to the term "sticky wicket." Um, and those sort of terms, or even rubbing people up the wrong way. But, or, but anyway, whatever, um, whatever, it's it's taken over. You know, it, because it's abraded all the great values of Australia. Mm. And on Sunday there was, of course, the Palm Sunday march about refugees. Yes. lots of people, and there were marches all over the country. Yeah. Um, they got ignored, totally ignored by the media. Really? Um, Monday morning, the Herald Sun gave 11 pages to the cricket, 11 mm. pages to one story. Wow. Mm-hmm. But that squeezed out a story in which, of course, untrue Aussie values were being were being uh, mm-hmm. asserted because mm-hmm. um, people were saying, in fact, we were cruel, inhumanity, inhumane, mm. um, that we were, our policy was uh, perhaps not... Uh, the sort of standard we should have, or even up mm-hmm. to Wilster. So mm-hmm. those sort of things shouldn't get a, get an airing anyway, should they? Really? Not as important as the cricket, that's for sure. Oh, no, well, human rights. Virginia, really. <laughs> it's good to have you on the program and know that you realise the importance of these things. Uh, you recognise all this. That's bloody terrific. That's all I want to say. Um, actually, the, just want to mention there's a, there's a film being made um, – or just finished being made, uh, called just called Albatross by a bloke called Chris Jordan. Mm. And have you heard about it? It's, it's, I think so. Yeah, it's stationed on. He's looking at an island, Midway Island, uh, in the Pacific. But what, why he made the film was, and interesting when it comes out, was because he discovered that all these albatross chicks were dying. Mm. Um, you know, loads of them lying on beaches and things. And then he discovered they were they were eating plastic. In the middle of the ocean, so that's what the it's going to be a pretty depressing film, I suspect. But that's what it's about about the uh, the pollution of the oceans. Did he go there and sort of film? I don't know why he went there in the first place, but when he got there, he realised this was going on, Mm. which is pretty uh, pretty awful. Is that on somewhere in Melbourne, Kevin? Uh, it hasn't it come on yet. I just read about it. It was in the Guardian Weekly last week. I mentioned a story about it, so I just. Mm. Um, Noted it, but I don't think it's come here yet. No. Mm, maybe for I'm the sure. environmental yeah. film festival. Or well, let's hope so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, this is an interesting little story. I think um, a bloke called uh, Bruce Bilson. He was the a former Liberal Party minister, and he resigned at the last election. But there's been a bit of a thing going on about him because before he resigned, he he was uh, nonetheless became a lobbyist. Um, for the Franchise Council of Australia. In fact, he became an executive director and got $75,000 a year for for being a director of the Franchise Council of Australia, even though he was in Parliament at the time. Oh, but it, he and he failed to notify the, the Register of Interests about this, so there's been some suggestion that he should be censured, which it, I'm sure he'd suffer enormously from that while grabbing the 75 grand in his parliamentary pension. But anyway, uh. um, 
but he, they, they, a parliamentary privileges committee accepted his failure to, to disclose was due to oversight. Now, it always is oversight. It's oversight when people get overpaid, for instance, yeah. and underpaid at least, never get overpaid. Um, but the investigation also uncovered a second instance of failure with his personal company, Agile Advisory. So he was getting money out of his personal company, hmm. but in that case it was also found to be an oversight. Oh, how can you have oversight with your own company? <laughs> um, you're not paying attention, I think, if that happens. Ah, that might be it. Yeah. <laughs> yes, anyway, that's well, it. Well, this is the kind of stuff that the Australian Institute, is it the Australian Institute, are working on yeah. for the uh, Federal Anti-Corruption Inquiry Commission. Yes, like, yes, yeah. which we're going to do something about in a couple of weeks. I hope enough, so, yeah. yeah. We did I've something before. To, and, yeah. yeah, I've been in touch with Hannah um, from the Institute yeah. about the work that they're doing there and also uh, related to the tax cuts. Yeah, well, yeah. there was an interview with them this morning about the tax cuts um, oh, on great. Radio National. Oh. Uh, but he did mention that a corruption, a federal corruption body would be would save a lot more money than, than tax cuts for the rich yeah. in, in the course of the interview. So Interesting. We'll, we'll yeah. pick that up in a couple of weeks when we do an interview about that. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Don Russell, many people remember Don Russell. He was an advisor to Keating going way back when a few of those people were pretty much in the news. And apparently he's been, I didn't realise, but he's um, been head of the uh, Premier's Department. Um, was the Premier's Department? Whatever. Anyway, it was, he was one of the heads of the department in, in, um, in South Australia. And the new Premier has sacked him and sacked um, a number of other heads of department. And he says, we won't be putting in our mates like Labor did over such a long period of time, he said. And he wants the um, he wants the uh, public servant to be independent, public service to be independent. So I can only imagine that he'll put in people who are really and truly independent. Do you yeah, think I think so. Yeah. So he yeah. won't put them in over a long period of time, just yeah. sack everyone and put them all in quickly. No, no, no. no. <laughs> well, poor, uh, poor old Tony Abbott had to do that too. He had to get rid of a lot of head public servants. Oh but, yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally. But as we'll say, talk to uh, John Passant later about. They then have to spend fortunes, of course, on consultants and things. So what you save in sacking people, yeah. uh, you uh, you lose in having to. But still, it's good for yeah. the uh, the industries that the consultancies. And, yeah, and I think I'm going to get into that companies. industry. Yeah, yeah. yeah, they seem to have a pretty good game. Mm-hmm. Um, and you'll be pleased to know because he needs the money. Um, Barack Obama came to Australia last weekend, and he sp- he made a couple of speeches, and he earned 1.3 million. For being here for, two, for one and a half or two days, wow. speaking to people, um, he spoke to he spoke to the Art Gallery of New South Wales on uh, Saturday night. I think it was to, to an audience uh, put together by Mastercard. It would have been worth hearing. I would have thought. Sounds inclusive. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> he, uh, well, he signed up with the prestigious Harry Walker Agency, which has quoted a fee of between half a million to six hundred thousand per speaking appearance. Mm. So, and John Howard got onto that circuit, of course, after he resigned, and he was getting oh. paid thousands and thousands. And Where thousands. is John yeah. Howard now, though? Uh, well, he's probably today bemoaning the fact that they haven't. Yes, he might be under the blankets. He might have given up his morning walk. <laughs> so that's where John Howard probably is. Um, but speaking of John Howard, um, after uh, after what's his name resigned, the ex uh, George Brandis, the ex Attorney General, mm. Attorney General, um, after he resigned. Um, um, they worked out. They, they had to have an election inside the Labor, the uh, Liberal Party to work out who was going to replace. Anyway, he's been replaced, and she was sworn in last week by a 35-year-old woman called Amanda Stoker. 
Uh, and um, Amanda sounds like she's going to be great. Really good. Good. Yeah, that's she's right. She's got your tick yeah. of approval. Yes, she's okay. a lawyer. Uh, she's a former associate of Ian Cullinan when he was on the High Court bench, and he was one of the more conservative High Court judges. Mm-hmm. But this is the bit, I think, that really shows that she um, she will be good for all of us. She nominates as her political heroes John Howard and Margaret Thatcher. Oh, what a duo. <laughs> yeah, yes. well, she yes. likes enduring leadership obviously <laughs> yes she she says she's part of what she describes as a generation of young politicians inspired by the howard era <sighs> it was an inspirational time wasn't it <laughs> we were pretty inspired <laughs> we just didn't pull the trigger <laughs> no that's a terrible thing to say um so there you are uh, inspired yeah. a lot of protests and yeah that's right community concerns anyway good news for you two i've decided i'm going to take you out to dinner Oh, thanks. That's wow. great. Yeah, and buy you a drink. We're going to Sydney. <laughs> to see uh, Barack Obama? No, there's oh. no Barack. <laughs> well, if he came there, we could listen to him, but um, we pay the right money. But no, there's this, this bar and grill in Sydney that's got a special on a $600 steak. Oh, good. We can have, I'll Bargain. Shout, we'll have I mean, one each. don't have to be a vegetarian all the time. <laughs> no, you don't. We don't. We'll, we'll, have, we'll have one each. Um, it got lots of coverage last week in the um, in the in economic and the financial media, um, and um, it, it's it's a great steak. I mean, the bloke of the journo who tried it, he said it's really terrific. Yeah. But he forgot to order the mash and the side things, which would have cost extra than six hundred. I mean, you couldn't expect for six hundred to get those as well. That would be a um, bit rich. No, a bit of potato, for God's sake. What's uh, um, what's so special about the steak? Well, he says it's. Um, he says it's just absolutely – before I even take a bite, it has three things going for it. The beef has been sourced from Victorian Wagyu pioneer David Blackmore, the undisputed master of full-blood Wagyu outside of Japan, whose surprisingly dainty animals consistently achieve the highest marbling score. can't imagine a big bull being dainty, but anyway. Mm. Um, and it's dry aged on the bone. It goes on, and he says it's wonderful to eat. Well, $600, you'd hope it was. Um, but also, what I'm going to buy you as well, this is where I'm really going to help you out, you can pick up a, a glass of 2009 Grange Hermitage for only $288 a glass. So I reckon That's a nice. st- steak and a glass yeah. each. Yeah. Away we go. <laughs> Plus the airfare to Sydney, but that's nothing when you're paying that sort of money. No, exactly. No, no, no. We'll need to so. fly first class, I think. <laughs> oh. so, yeah. What, what <laughs> else? That's okay. Digest on the way back. <laughs> what else? Although at those prices, I might have to dink you both. <laughs> Push our way up the highway. <laughs> So anyway, that's it. So uh, you can look forward to that, can't you? Thank you. That's, that's yeah, lovely. Yeah, well, that's right. Well, thank you. Thank you very yeah. much. And, of course, last week we did see, and we'll go to John Paston in a second, but last week we did see the first uh, accident or the first death with a drive-yourself car. Oh, God. We? Yeah, mm. with Uber in America, uh, which ran someone over. So um, Whoa. Yeah. So now they've um, they've caused a bit of a moratorium on it to investigate, et cetera, et cetera. But I did I did yeah. see a headline though that's kind of relevant to our discussions of urban planning, saying that um, it's it's going to be an opportunity to look at how we redesign tra- traffic intersections to make pedestrians safer. So oh, maybe that's yes. something good yes. that will come out of that. Yeah, mm, maybe it could. Yeah, because yeah. I mean the pla- the place the spaces that pedestrians have are tiny compared to the spaces where cars mm. have priority. Yeah. And I noticed like the times I've been in North America and the um especially on the northwest 
part of America, mm. um, that uh, cars always stop for, like in Vancouver, Seattle, Portland, places like that, cars always stop for pedestrians. It's That's the way, that's how the mentality works and how the the that relationship between pedestrians and cars work. Like even if you're like not at an intersection, if you are on the curb and about to cross, cars will stop. Yeah, right. So it's very confusing. Yeah, because I'm used to always, um, you know, giving priority to cars. Mm. And it's really interesting to have a different kind of mindset Mm. when you're wandering around. I wonder if it's like that in all parts of the US or just... No, it's not. You've had a privileged (laughs) experience. I mean, certain places, yeah, have different sort of cultural norms, I suppose. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah, but it's... uh, yeah, it's interesting. And also, of course, um, though you talked about being caught at the lights coming on the bike last week. And, of yep. course, so many of those those crossings, et cetera, yeah. are designed for the traffic. I mean, yep. and, and they're designed often for two or three sets of traffic lights that are going against you. Mm-hmm. So on mm-hmm. bike paths and things, I agree with you. I think if mm. it's clear, go across. You mm. get a lot of people look angrily at you. But, mm. you know, that if they made them work so that they worked fair and fairness yep. to pedestrians and cyclists, then yep. I'd, I'd wait for it. Yeah, But exactly. not when they don't. Mm. Yeah, I saw I saw a really great uh, drawing cartoon once of um, as if all of the spaces where pedestrians are at risk or don't have priority, as if they were all great big chasms, like drops into the ground, and you just have these precarious little spaces which are like for pedestrians or for community that are yeah. not like corporate spaces or commercial spaces and are not spaces for cars and vehicles, and you're just like walking around on little tightropes mm. and pavement and that's yeah. how it feels yeah. yeah i was riding down well, alexandra parade the other day it's a precarious <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 well we fought um you know alexandra parade we fought uh, that freeway struggle in the 70s there mm. and uh it was it was just a quiet park kids played on because everyone used queen's parade or heidelberg oh, road or whatever wow. um and um, it was only when they opened the freeway through to it that we uh, ended up with you know what we've got now but but mm. once they opened it pedestrians unless you run across mm. you've really got to wait two full light changes because mm. they because you get a halfway across and then you get onto the, the middle bit mm. and then when you get to the other side mm. the light's gone against you mm. um, and of course it's such a long wait anyway for the light mm. to change again so it really just militates dreadfully against pedestrians yeah you do have to get your jogging shoes on to get across it mm. <laughs> absolutely mm. okay let's do something better let's talk to john passett about all right. oh, the economy that'll cheer people up oh yeah <laughs> Okay, and um, we've got John Passon on the line. I'm glad to get you on the line today, John, because I, I was saying earlier in the piece uh, when we introduced the program that maybe we'd find it hard to get you because you'd be in distress and maybe crying and, and, well, just in pure distress over the news overnight. Which was? Which, which was that the um, tax cuts didn't get through. Oh, that news. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes I'm sorry. Yeah. I know. I've, I've been cr- crying all night and I'm so upset. <laughs> I just cannot survive. it. No, well, that's right. <laughs> and I, my, my memory is gone, yeah. Did yes, they really I, knock it back? I can't believe yes. it. Well, I can't believe Darren Hinch, but he will eventually, of course, but he didn't vote for it, yeah. John Passagos, we mentioned earlier that John's an ex-assistant commissioner of taxation. You lecture in tax law somewhere, don't you, John, still? Do you still do that? Uh, No, I've um, put a hold on that for the moment. Okay, right here. Yes. So John doesn't lecture in tax law anyway. (laughs) (laughs) And and, uh, and he's he's an expert and he's come on to talk about lots of things. But John, um, this terrible news overnight, um, last week, um, well, in fact, a couple of weeks ago now, um, the um, CEOs of all the companies said that you needed to cut tax to create jobs. Uh, yep. Last week, in fact, they did come out and say they'd guarantee that they'd 
create jobs. They said jobs would be. It was an interesting phrase. They said they, they, they want they pledged to all senators to invest more in Australia and ultimately increase wages, whatever ultimately means. Uh, but then, as you probably are aware, a survey that they tried to keep secret from the Business Council of Australia came out that showed that only seventeen or eighteen percent of top um, companies said they would invest and, in, and, and create more jobs. Yes, that's a report from the Financial Review, which I just happened to have in front of me. Um, um, they did a survey of their, of their members and they got a fairly good response and they gave them four options about what they used the tax cuts for, which um, were returning funds to shareholders, more investment, increasing the wages of their existing workforce or increasing employment and more than 80% nominated one of the first two options, that is um, returning funds to shareholders, so increased dividends, or using the money to invest elsewhere. Mm. And only 16 to 17% nominated higher wages or employment, which um, the answer to that is in the buzzwords ultimately or the phrase ultimately. But, of course, you know, you've got to understand that when we invest more, ultimately there will be higher wages and more employment. Mm. I think there are a number of responses to that. Um, one of them I was thinking about uh, uh, overnight almost, um, that, well, look at the banks. The banks are the most profitable um, banks. Australian banks are the most profitable in the world. Um, they make super profits, basically, in Australia. The return on investment, although it's been falling recently, that's, uh, especially in light of the financial... Uh, not of the... Um, inquiry into them, the Royal Commission into them, but nevertheless, they make a massive return on investment. Mm. And have they been using that return on investment to increase employment or wages? How long have we got to answer that? (laughs) They have been cutting jobs. I think NAB announced they're going to get rid of 6,000 staff over the next few years. So, I mean, seriously, this survey just highlights the fact that you can use all the weasel words you like, but the real drivers of the the real drivers for business are making profit, not necessarily for increase, not obviously not for increasing wages or for increasing employment unless they think that's going to make them profitable. And uh, in most cases, they don't. So this is just nonsense, all this stuff about tax cuts leading to more employment and higher wages. And study after study shows this. And I think the other side of it that we haven't talked about, at all, which we should, is, well, if this is going to cost the Australian revenue $65 billion, and the government's keen on balancing the budget, who's going to pay for it? And then the obvious answer is education, mm. health, social welfare. Um, and long term, if you're not investing in your health system and your education system and uh, having a safety net for people who are out of a job or are sick or whatever, then <laughs> your profitability declines. So, mm. you know, it's, a, it's a, a, a bad argument by capital uh, that... Uh, this tax cut will produce all these wonderful, wonderful benefits. Mm. John, what is the, um, you know, you said this, this, there was a survey that surveyed businesses that, and showed yeah, that yeah. they that if they had increased profit that they would return that to shareholders or invest in other areas rather than increasing wages or increasing employment. Why do you think there's such a kind of, um, what's in it for them to give the money to shareholders? Is it just that more people will become shareholders and they can just increase their profits? Like, why Why is that the, the choice that 
why why are shareholders so considered so important? Well, part of part of the reason is um, for capital raising purposes. So you right. can borrow or you can raise capital through uh, issuing of uh, shares and okay. so forth. Yeah. Uh, so that would be to attract people to buy your shares and to drive the price up, which makes them more attractive, and yeah. to expand the the amount of um, revenue that I'm um, sorry of capital that mm. you've got. Other there are other reasons as well in relation to this, which are a bit more complex. Um, but basically, um, the idea of share investment is not just for the return to investors, mm. but also to uh, ensure that the company has a enough capital mm. to be able, if in case there was a run on its debts and whatever, mm. to be able to pay debts and all that sort of thing. So mm. it's all about, and of course, it's all about creating a strong company, which uh, in which consumers will have confidence, so that you know, if you've got a good um, economic base, you've got a good capital base, then people are more likely not only to invest in you, but you hope to buy your products because you're a well-respected company, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Um, but, <laughs> uh, yes, the problem with all of this is that, <laughs> as the Business Council of Australia shows, really, well, I'll say one thing, and they've got a myth that exists that, oh, you know, we're a really good company, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But on, on the other hand, hand, they're not. <laughs> on that point, John, they echo, although the answer to the other question was also greed does spring to mind as well. But um, they, they say we never completed the survey, and um, so we shouldn't take any notice of it. And they say what's on the public record is what matters, and those commitments are on it, which is the commitments that they would give wage increases, those who voted they wouldn't. But uh, So obviously we're misjudging them, John. Oh, yes, I think that's right. I think... You've got to listen to what their, excuse my sarcasm voice here, I can't get it right. You've got to listen to what they say, not what a survey shows they yeah. really think. Right. What, what they say, what? not what they do. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was, an, incom- and, it was an incomplete survey, but your point also about, I mentioned earlier about the ultimately increased wages, and one of our great friends, I know a bloke you like a lot, Innes Willox from the um, business, one of the business, business council. profits okay. councils, yeah. yeah. Um, he says, um, he talks about you know, how wonderful it would be, how we desperately need this tax, lower taxes, and then says, once in place, these investments would underwrite improvements in employment and productivity and would lay the foundation for improvements in real wages. So it's either ultimately or laying the foundation for, but there's no, it doesn't seem to be too many guarantees going on. No, absolutely not, and uh, that's why if the government uh, were to consider um, legislating along the lines of, well, you must pass this on in wage increases and more employment, business would go berserk, because this is all a furphy to try and get us to accept the loss of $65 billion in revenue and the consequent attacks on schools and hospitals and social welfare. It's interesting that Willux mentioned productivity, because if you look at the Australian economy over the last 20 years or so, it's actually been built on the back of increasing productivity by workers, yet the rewards for that increased productivity have overwhelmingly gone to capital rather than to um, to labour. So um, one example of this, I was looking at the figures today, is if you look at the figures for what's called factor income in the Australian Bureau of Statistics, data on the economy. Basically, it's about, you know, if you've got um, loans, who who gets the interest and how much of GDP it is. 
And if you look at what's been happening, the share of uh, the profit share of factor income has increased over the last 30, 40 years or so from 17% of GDP to um, 27%, whereas the share for wages has fallen from 62% to, it varies, but it went as low as 52% at one stage and now it's about 53 or 54%. So over the last 40 years, there's been this massive increase in money going to capital, and yet uh, we've had the ups and downs in the 90s and 2009, 2008, 2009 of the financial crises and so forth, and um, all the uh, ups and downs of capitalism over that period of time. So even though we've been shoveling a lot of the productivity increases into capital, they haven't responded with more jobs and better wages. Mm. <laughs> now, as you can see, the, what are the figures for wages at the moment in Australia? They're flatlining. They're mm. actually yeah. below the level of um, inflation so that they're mm. falling in real terms. And if you look at those figures, John, you'll find that the, the, big, the, big decline, the big spread starts to come around the time neoliberal economics started to grip on our, take a grip on our economy. And it's in that sort of 20-year or so period that the real differences occurred where wage value has really dropped and profits have soared. Well, I'd even go further. I'd, I'd say that initially the, the, the best way that capital was able to do this was have the Hawke government elected in 1983 mm. in the Accord reduce the increase in wages, so during a period of profitability in Australian capitalism, the rewards that were going to workers were above inflation, but the rewards that were going to capital were much greater than that, so that the accord started the process of this neoliberal economics and neoliberal consensus, and then, of course, the election of the Howard government in its attempt to further that process by um, um, destroying the consensus and going into a more or less all-out attack on on labour was part of the process of accelerating this uh, shift to capital at the expense of labour. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and of course, last week, um, would you have a question by the way? Yeah, I was going to ask John a question. So, um, hi, John. My name's Eugenia. Um, hi, how are you? Good, thanks. Uh, so, uh, excuse my naivety, but. It seems like if the government's promising to to do this in order to create jobs, and we now know through lots of studies that it's not actually going to be successful in creating those jobs, why are they still why are they still pursuing this? What's in it for the government? Oh, I think it's basically that the government and most major parties believe in capitalism, and they believe that uh, this particular government believes that. Uh, in the trickle-down theory, which is a, a consequence of neoliberal economics, and that trickle-down theory is the more money that capital has, the better off uh, Australia will be. The downside of that as well, I think there's another side to this as well, if you look at it in terms of profitability and wages, um, there's a real um, driver by business to keep wages down because each individual business sees their profitability in terms of their own individual accounts. So the lower their costs are, which includes wages and, and taxes, the better off they are. And so the government says, along with big business, well, you know, there'll be more jobs and there'll be higher wages. And why is that? Oh, because, you know, obviously with this increase in investment, things will flow down to the rest of us. Well, we've had 30 years of that and that hasn't happened really. I mean, we've got levels of unemployment now that have stayed the same except for the financial crisis, at 
five, six, seven percent, whereas uh, prior to 1975, you know, we were looking at two percent. So, um, I think the basic point is that governments think that if it's good for capital, it's good for the rest of us, and mm. clearly that's not the case. Yeah, um, there's a strong ideological aspect to it, isn't it, with the Liberal Party, and and there's the politics of it. Because I've, uh, is it right that the Labor Party have said that if they get elected, they'll um, repeal the the tax cuts um, if they go through, if they end up going through? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. They said they'd repeal the tax cuts. Um, mm. Now, I think the qualification to that was, and uh, my memory's a bit shaky here, mm. so I can be corrected by anybody who's listening and wants to phone in, that, that the tax cuts that they will repeal are the ones for that are being proposed now. There are already mm. a set of tax cuts in, up to turnovers of $50 million. Mm. So those tax cuts um, are basically for small business when they've got 27.5% tax rate, whereas over um, turnover of $50 million, the tax rate is 30%. Now, mm. the government wants to reduce that 30% on those with a turnover of more than $50 million over time down to 25%, and obviously for small business to reduce their current 27.5% down to um, 25%. And what the mm. Labor government's saying is it's the cuts from now on that will be uh, repealed. So mm. the previous cuts that are already in place would stay, I understand. Mm. But yes, they've, they've, they've come out and said basically they'll repeal um, the majority of the tax cuts and uh, retain the... Re- retain the $65 billion or so, a, a bit less than that, in the hands of the, the government to spend on, you know, or the Labor government to spend on health and education and social services. Even on the ABC earlier this morning, um, John, an interview with David Shepherd, I don't know if you heard it or not, from the, one of the Prophets' Councils, um, yeah. and um, she put to him, it was Fran Kelly, she put to him that the real the real tax level for Australian business is about 15 or 20%, but he poo-pooed that, but you'd certainly uh, say it might even be less, wouldn't you? Uh, <laughs> well, this raises the issue that a number of people have talked about before, um, so I'll just sidetrack that for a minute, which is, well, you know, all these big businesses that are going to uh, suddenly employ more people and raise the wages of people, what about those 37% of large businesses that pay no income tax? Uh, why haven't they been doing this? Mm. <laughs> and the answer is, well, because they've got a competitive advantage, one of the things is, mm. by reducing their tax rates. So they're, they're reaping in... Um, either super profits or maybe they are in a position of adverse situation in terms of the economy. But it's not just that. Um, uh, now I've lost my thread. I've got too carried away by the... By <laughs> we're, we're talking about what the real level of tax they pay is. Oh, the effective yeah, tax rate. Yeah, yeah. yeah, The effective tax rate is the amount of tax compared to the accounting income. So if you look at the taxable income, there's a whole lot of deductions that business get that wouldn't be allowed under normal accounting rules. So if you look at the tax rate or the amount of tax that business pays compared to their declared accounting incomes, the general rate's around 17%, I understand. Um, It depends on which industries you're talking about. Some industries have an effective tax rate that's higher than 17%. Some industries have one that's lower than 17%. But it's a real figure and it's a real-life figure that companies make their 
determinations on. And if you're suddenly going to say, well, hang on, 30% company tax rate's too high, but nobody has, or very few companies Mm -hmm. have, an effective tax rate of 30%. Their effective tax rates are much closer to 17% or, in some cases, zero, depending on which industries we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is the Tax Act is littered with deductions and Mm -hmm. benefits for for business that are outside the normal mainstream of accounting so that um, you don't get taxed on your accounting income, you get taxed on your taxable income and because you get all these deductions and credits and rebates and all sorts of different things Mm. and exemptions, um, you end up uh, paying much less tax out of your accounting income than a 30% uh, headline rate indicates. Um, It's an interesting point, all of this, because um, if you look at effective tax rates, (laughs) Uh, you have to start to then wonder, well, what are they complaining about? They're only making a minor contribution to Australian society. Mm. (laughs) Are they getting away with blue murder? And, of course, there's an interesting article that was put out recently, I can't remember whether it was in The Guardian or Crikey, which said, so what is the real company tax rate that big business would like? You know the answer mm. to that as soon as you ask it. They'd like a zero tax rate. You know, they'd just like to say, well, we me, don't want to pay any tax. Well, every time they've had a tax cut, they've always then started the campaign for the next one. That's what they do, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, that, that's right. We'll find that... I think there's another aspect in all of this. We'll find that 30% is not internationally competitive. Mm. Oh, let's go to 25%. Mm. Well... 25% when we get there, if we get there, 25% is not internationally competitive. Mm. we better go to 20%. Oh, look at what the UK is doing. They've gone down to 17%. Oh, look at what the US is doing. They've gone down to 21%. They're our real competitors. We need to match them. It's just this never-ending cycle. And, of mm. course, <laughs> once they get their 25%, then they'll be arguing for 20%. And, in fact, they will be arguing that 25% is not enough anyway. Yeah. Yeah. How much is uh is this all influenced by things in America? I th- I'm thinking of two things. Like there's the the fact that mega global mega companies pay nothing because they have the resources to say that they've earned nothing in certain countries. Um, yeah. But there's a push against that. Like in Ireland, they uh, got Apple to pay taxes there. Is that right? Mm. Yep, yeah. that's right. They changed their tax laws because they mm. had what's called a double. Irish Dutch loop where you just mm. routed your income through Ireland into Holland mm. then back from the Netherlands into Ireland and then off to the Bermuda off to mm. Bermuda or whichever tax haven so they closed that down Amazing. and that was under public pressure right. um, and there are international discussions going on about uh, fixing up mm. this imbalance where you know people like Apple and Google and mm. Facebook and so forth Amazon. route route their income around the globe. Mm. It's interesting to note, I saw, speaking of which, I saw a report recently which said, if you want to make a complaint to Facebook Australia about how you're being treated in, on Facebook, if somebody says something defamatory about you, the response that some one person got in relation to this was, oh, we don't control the Facebook site in Australia. Well. You should go to Facebook Island. Oh. Now, why Facebook Island? Because the, tech, the company tax rate in Ireland is 12.5%, so <laughs> um, compared to 30% in Australia. Wow. Uh, Apple's an interesting example, too, because if you look at what happens with Apple, Apple's actually a taxpayer in the US, but it diverts a big taxpayer, but it's, a, its effective tax rate outside the US is around, from memory, uh, around 1% or 2%. 
So what it, pay, it pays tax in all the other jurisdictions outside the US at an effective tax rate of 1% or 2%. How does it do that? Well, it shifts profits around the globe and ends them up in, in tax havens where the, the tax rate is zero, avoiding tax by routing it through Ireland or wherever it happens to be mm. to ensure that uh, it pay, and and lumping the profit in there and then shifting it off to Bermuda. So, you know, this, um, these arrangements by big business are all driven by, um, I like to quote here a former head of Google who said, of course we're going to look for low tax rates. It's capitalism. We're going to structure our affairs in such a way as to reduce all all the costs that are on us so that profit is bigger. And that because they see paying tax or taxes as a cost of business rather than an investment in the society, mm. um, they try to reduce it. And they've got the wherewithal to be able to do it because they play on a global scale. It's very dangerous, though, to go after them, I think, the poor dears, because... Two days after they announced uh, an inquiry into IKEA dodging taxes, the head of IKEA dropped dead. <laughs> <laughs> that hasn't happened to the banks in Australia with the Royal Commission, has it? <laughs> no, I don't think so. In fact, my very bad joke at the time, this is a, this is a very bad joke, John, at the time was that uh, they had to delay the funeral because the undertaker had trouble putting the coffin together. Oh! <laughs> that's told, told you it was and bad. You, told you it was bad. But you know where the... Uh, head of IKEA lived. Did he live in um, uh, in Sweden? The Scandinavia? No, he lived in Switzerland. Yeah. That's right. Why did he live in Switzerland? <laughs> because they're viewed as a a, a tax haven around the world. So, yeah. Yeah. Look, your point, <laughs> Very, though, sorry, your point about. Um, about tax deductions for business. I mean, it, it seems to me that if those are costs of of making the business earn a profit, why should the taxpayers pay any of that? Uh, well, the argument is in terms of tax uh, tax ideology that you've got to spend money to make money. So if I employ people in my business, that's seen as the cost of my business, so my wages are deductible against my, my gross revenue. Mm. And I think that's a legitimate approach. But um, on the other hand, there are accelerated uh, depreciation provisions. There are various credits that um, mining industries and, and others get um, and other benefits that mean that they get deductions that are outside that norm, which shouldn't be um, technically um, fall outside normal accounting principles and shouldn't be allowed. I, I want to go slightly off point on this because it's not dealing with business, but it is. there is a, a really good report that's just come out from Anglicare called, oh, I forget what it's called, um, um, the cost of privilege. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that one. Um, yep, yep. It found that the eight of the largest tax concessions and exemptions cost just over one hundred and thirty-five billion dollars a year in revenue for gone. For gone. Mm. So that is, if they'd been taxed normally and it had been abolished, there would have been an extra eight, uh, up to one hundred and thirty-five billion dollar a year in revenue, and that. Not only that there was this 135 billion uh, in revenue for gone, it disproportionately went to high income and high wealth households. Mm. About 68 billion went to the wealthiest to 20% of households. 68 billion of that um, revenue for gone. Now, this is a bit of a harder concept to understand than 
direct payments by government, but it's the equivalent. Basically, every year, Treasury puts out a document called the Tax Expenditure Statement, which um, Anglicare has used to develop the cost of privilege. Mm. Um, And it shows, as as Anglicare have shown, the real beneficiaries of the tax grant system are the very well-off in Australia and uh, the very wealthy in Australia. So Mm. instead of um, attacking people who are unemployed or people who are on long-term disability or mm. other benefits, we should be looking at all of the, 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 the tax concessions that result in the well-off getting $68.1 billion a year in an effective grant through the tax system. $68 billion a year. Mm. <laughs> Imagine what you could do with that. Mm. That's a, you, could, you could solve um, mm. housing crisis, you could increase uh, pension payments, you could increase the um, Centrelink payments to um, by $100 or so a, a week and it wouldn't make much of a difference mm-hmm. to the $68 billion at all. Um, a bit of public it, transport. It's your priority. <laughs> public transport, yeah. health yeah. and education. But, of yeah. course, this is, a, this is a disguised way of benefiting the elite in society or the well-off in society and capital. So it won't be and won't receive the same sort of con- uh, attention as somebody who's on... What is the the doll now? Two hundred and sixty-seven no. a week, or something. bugger all, whatever. Mm. And and who's now going to be hit with um, periods of not receiving even that pittance because of the recent changes that the Senate voted through to the social welfare legislation, which mean they can be no carded for being sick or having a crisis in their family or whatever, or the drug testing stuff that's starting to crop up again. I don't know. Just terrific. It's all about priorities, and we should be looking after people and clawing back the money that goes to the well off. Mm-hmm. Not not rocket science. So, John, we are in city limits after all, and you've just mentioned transport and housing. What impact do you reckon um, all these uh, tax laws have on urban planning or urban space? Ah, that's a. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. That's a really <laughs> good question. Um, one of the things I think about urban planning is that it's still uh, very much in the hands, especially transport in urban planning, still very much in the hands of people who think in terms not of public transport, or if they have been trapped into thinking about public transport because it already exists in their city, they're thinking about ways of avoiding public transport. Mm. Um, And that's reinforced by a tax system which says, well, you know, what it's reinforced by governments who want to privatise our public uh, transport systems, uh, who want to encourage further private health, who want to encourage further private education. Mm. And they do that through having a focus on, well, you've got to be better run if it's done for a profit than if it's done to satisfy human need. And so, therefore, that reflects, it finds a reflection in, and of course we'll get a little bit of money back because these people will make a profit and we'll be able to tax them. And the mm-hmm. tax system encourages this sort of thinking about profitability is the be-all and end-all. Mm-hmm. And so you have, I think, a, a, a mindset in society that if it's good for capital, it's good for everybody else. And so what does capital think about planning in the urban environment? It thinks, well, we can put a high-rise up here Mm. Um, now, I'm not necessarily opposed to high-rise development, but the question then has to become how it impacts on the people who currently live there, 
and you can see a, an example of that at uh, in Sydney with uh, Milson's Point, was it? Where you, the long-term residents are thrown out because Miller's point. they're standing in the way, Miller's Point, yeah. you know, standing in the way of uh, profitable redevelopment. So I think uh, one of the issues here becomes, um, well, how do we address this? And then you know raises that wider issue of well, we've got a society based on the profit motive and run by the profit motive. So transport seen through profit, transport, education, health are all seen through profit, mm. but have been forced back in the periods after the war, or even before the war, to provide public transport, public health, public education, because they satisfy certain needs of capital. But they're all under attack now as neoliberalism continues its uh, incessant drive into all aspects of thinking about Miller's point was, uh, is, is wonderful. It's wonderful public housing just above the rocks that was saved by the green bands in the 70s um, by the builders' labourers. Um, and the government, and the, of course, developers have been drooling over it ever since, but they've finally got their hands on it. And the government's argument is that by selling all that wonderful, wonderful public housing right on the edge of Sydney, they can use it to build public housing. There seems to be a conflict here somewhere. Yes, that's right. Um, trust them. You've got to trust them. You know? A bit like company tax cuts. It'll all happen. Just trust us. Yeah, that's they have right. our best interests at heart. What was that? I just said they have our best interests at heart, fundamentally. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yes. That's why they're there. And if, if, if our best interests are in making profit, yes, that's mm. right. Mm. And Miller's is a classic example, Miller's point. And you mentioned the builders' labourers. Um, the latest incarnation of builders' labourers is the um, CFMEU, the Construction, Forestry, Mining and Energy Union, which is one of the best unions in Australia, actually has been winning 5% pay increases for its workers. So when people say, oh, if you cut, cut company tax, it'll result in better wages, my answer to them is, well, look at the CFMEU. They win better wages mm. for their, for their employee, for their, for their members, and they, they defend jobs on site. And I think that's the alternative vision, which says, you know, unions can fight for better wages. Unions can fight to defend jobs or to manage the process of, of, of job change. And so these are the issues, I think, that should be on the, on the table, not the question of tax cuts to, to people who are not going to invest in wages and, and jobs or... Um, whatever else it happens to be, or that they're, they're going to make public transport better, or that they're going to look after public housing or pensioners, or whatever it happens to be. I mean, it's just all rubbish. Yeah. It, it sounds to me like there's really strong parallels between um, that neoliberal approach to tax and to public space, you know, giving it up oh. in the short term in order to notionally regain something better down the track that is That's totally a really good guaranteed. Point. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Wait, just wait for the long-term benefits. They'll trickle yeah. down. Mm. Yes, and I think the other thing is that they all reflect neoliberal thinking. Taxing mm. cuts is the same as redeveloping Miller's Point. But <laughs> will we ever see where this new public housing is and how long will it take and how far out from from... Workplaces will it be? And it'll so be forth. halfway between Sydney and Melbourne. That's where it'll be. <laughs> um, somewhere around Canberra. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. But back on that industrial point, um, when Sally McManus last week said that businesses were denying workers their fair share, well, if they got their fair share, of course, companies wouldn't get a cent. But anyway, um, yes. the. Um, <laughs> but that's another question. <laughs> that's another question. You're right. But I do want to ask about that because um, 
Stephen Walters, the chief economist at the Australian Institute of Company Directors, said the old attitude is that of businesses winning and it's at the expense of employees. It's a good battle cry, but it's not the reality of the modern workplace. So going back to what I just said, of all Marx said about relationships, etc., and values, has that all changed somehow, John? Uh, um, relationships and values. I think uh, um, relationships we, between labour and capital and the value of labour, etc. I mean, oh, if, yes, if it's not the, if the modern workplace apparently changed all that by the sound of this. That's right. We're all in this together, yeah. and we're all working together for a better society where wages continue to flatline, where you can be sacked at a moment's notice if you're on a. Uh, precarious work employment, or if you're not in, in, in precarious work employment, you can be sacked fairly quickly. Nothing's changed. I mean, this is the nature of capitalism, um, and the neoliberal version is just one variant of the same idea. We've got to find a way of ensuring we, that small minority who own capital, make more and more profit to reinvest in more and more profit. Mm. And that reinvestment in the long term is in labour-replacing devices. So um, that is the real question, I think, mm. that Sally McManus and others are trying to, to deal with. Uh, and, of course, the fall in real wages. How do we address the fall in real wages and the rise of precarious employment? Mm. And it raises the whole of the questions. We've had, I think, a one-sided class war by capital against labour for the last well, 35 years, and maybe it's time now that we had a two-sided class war in which our side fought back. Tax the rich, you know, tax the rich and capital, and uh, also won wage increases and implemented strike action to defend jobs. I mean, Brilliant. This is the end of City Limits and I'm feeling optimistic. <laughs> That's why I yeah, love having you on the show, John. It's dangerous having you on, John, because we often end up on an optimistic note, which is not this program hates that. <laughs> oh, it's been great talking to you. I'm, All right. I'm sorry I waffled on so much no, and carried no. on. What, but I love this, love this show. Wonderful. wonderful. Thank, thanks, thanks a lot, John. Thank okay. you, thanks, John. everyone, thanks for, for talking to me. Thank you. Right, yeah. Bye-bye. John Passant there, who, as we say, is an ex-assistant secretary and um, assistant uh, commissioner of taxation. And as you can tell, probably explain, if you listen to him, he explains, of course, why he's no longer an assistant uh, commissioner. (laughs) Brilliant. There we are, Just love it. Yeah. Yep. Good show. Next week's transport, you won't be here. I know. I'll be in Tasmania. Tasmania. I'll be doing some remote um, investigative journalism on the transport options of Hobart. (laughs) Which you'll tell us about next week after. (laughs) Get ready, guys. (laughs) This morning we ran a little bit late and I was playing the last Connections song, Black and Deadly. So we'll play that as we go. Okay. Yeah, it does say transport, but thanks, Eugenia. Well done again today. Oh, thanks, guys, for having me again. It's been fun. No, you're, it. You're part of the team now. Yeah, <laughs> we're, we're cycling to Sydney. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Yeah. No, see you next week.